I believe there is a cartoon somewhere featuring two squaddies about to go into battle somewhere in the Middle East. And one says to the other, we can't start fighting. Kate Ady's not here yet. <laughs> well, happily for us, we can start tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kate Ady. Maybe we should share with the audience what the significance of that particular Phil piece Collins, of music Phil is. Phil Collins. Well, I said on De Desert Island Discs years ago, uh, Sue Lawley asked me, you know, sort of, ah, did you sing things like, you know, pack up your troubles? I said, no, we did Phil Collins, for God's sake. It was a modern war. And that's the sound that accompanies young soldiers. It reminds you that whenever you go to conflict, the average age, well, I wouldn't say the average age, but the, the, the age you come across of ordinary soldiers, you're aghast. They seem to be about 15. In fact, they're 18, 19. They're 18, 19-year-olds, not even like the older students on a course at university. They are younger, and they are soldiers, they're trained, and they're there in conflict. It's quite an extraordinary moment. And we are going back many years, so Phil Collins was it. I'm sure they're all still, they're all still Genesis fans, I'm sure. I was thinking, how does it feel to see, to look back across that showreel, which obviously you must have Well, seen it's a, a career where you age publicly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it does actually stir memories. I mean, I was lucky. You used a word in your introduction. Um, which I'm fascinated by because I've argued in several instances that I was lucky to get the opportunity to be in a certain place at a certain time and that sometimes, which by rights I shouldn't have been there. My very beloved colleague Martin Bell, who has more experience than me and was in Vietnam as a reporter, Martin argues that there's no such thing as luck in our business. That it's a peculiar combination of having a, a bit of a sixth sense that something's not quite right. And that it's that little feeling that means you don't leave a certain place because everybody else is going home, everybody's tired, everybody wants to go to dinner, everybody's fed. You just stay around a bit longer. Because you feel something's, and then it happens. That's his theory. Um, I actually think that luck, a genuine sense of the unexpected coincidence happens. I've been in several. One of those stories was the Iranian embassy siege. I was due, it took six days, and there were these uh, terrorists who are in an embassy, having already killed several people in London, holding terrified hostages, an enormous ring of the police around it, and all the press sort of corralled at the far end of the road. 
And over six days, this complex story, but with no idea except for little hints of what was going on in the embassy, went on. And I was a fairly junior reporter on the national staff. And we came to the weekend, and in good old BBC terms, we were rotored. And this happens with a big organization, you know, this sort of old clerical work gets going. Because you are trying to cover 24 hours. And so that's probably two or three reporters. It's a huge drain on staff. And not every organization can do it. And I, being the junior, got 8 p.m. on Monday bank holiday evening until 8 a.m. the next day on the grounds that stuff all would happen. And that the senior correspondent would be on during daylight hours when you could see things. And anyway, nothing much happened at night. I got a call at about 4.30 in the afternoon. I was sitting at home, just sort of kicking my heels, waiting to go in um, down to the embassy in Princess Gate. And the rather sort of hacked off assignments editor said, uh, could you just possibly shift in a bit earlier? I said, why? He said, well, absolutely nothing has happened all afternoon. I said, boy. And the senior correspondent, who was, <clears throat> let's put it gently, was a rather difficult man. <laughs> Um, senior correspondent said, said, look, why am I hanging around here? I've got a dinner party tonight. You know, get the junior in a bit earlier and I'm going to, you know. So the assignments editor called me and as I was doing nothing, I actually about half an hour later sort of drove in and I was sort of hanging around just to see what the atmosphere is like. A bit of a bonus, you know go around gossip to people. Anyway, I got there, and I got there at about, I think I got there between half six, quarter to seven. There's lots of time to find that he'd already gone. Tough luck for him. The SAS went in at 10 past seven. <laughs> so I shouldn't have been the reporter there. Um, Martin that, would that argue... That was an important no, moment in your career, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. Martin would argue that it was my instinct to sort of say, any chance you get to be there, be there. Yes. I don't know. I just knew that the other reporter was very likely to sort of shove off early. You know, we'd have no one there, which would have been a bit of a boo-boo for the BBC. It was um, probably one of the most watched bits of television, not because of me. Let's make it perfectly clear. This was the time when snooker was king. <laughs> and the snooker finals from the Crucible in Sheffield were on at that moment. And I have never been forgiven by snooker fans <laughs> for bursting into it. So again, a curious piece of luck. If it had happened at three in the afternoon, there'd been a much smaller number of viewers. Yes into the snooker finals, you know, and he's coming up to the red one now. <laughs> and here at Princess Gate, you know, it's a big shock, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So therefore, um, it garnered one of the largest audiences we've seen in decades. Yeah. Well, you, you anticipate a number of our themes. I mean, we've talked about luck. We talked, uh, that was an important moment in your career, which maybe we'll kind of, we'll wind back in a minute and get us to that point. Um, and also this primacy of television, I think, is an interesting theme. I mean, it's in the nature of these, these events that we're, we're going to chat for about 40 minutes or so, and then um, I hope that Kate will 
talk as much, if not more, with, with you um, thereafter, and I'll just attempt to conduct proceedings. But I, I thought it might be appropriate to sort of set the scene, partly because clearly a lot of our audience, like me, will remember watching a lot of that. Anybody under 40 doesn't. Okay, well that ages me and obviously discounts the entire audience in that case. Um, but there will be, and, and you know, we were used to consuming our news in large numbers, you know, via, via such sort of set pieces, even if we were snooker fans. Um, we may well still tune in to hear you on from our own correspondent. But as you know, we've got a number of our students here, and whilst I hope they know who you are, they will not have experienced for the purposes of time, obviously at an age, but also they're not used to that kind of TV yeah. primacy. In a capsule, really, what, you know, the instant sort of, um, you know, absolutely compressed history is that from the 1960s onwards, television news grew in this country following American news, which was huge by then. Lots of people watching the news and, and the correspondence, and it was a huge excitement about news in America. And the American TV organizations, NBC, CBS, ABC at the time, CNN joined them 20 years later, uh, were beginning to command huge audiences. The BBC up to then had had very limited broadcasts, and then ITN had come along and pushed things with the BBC to modernize, update, and give a more punchy, a more relevant bulletin, rather than saying, here is the news. Her Majesty today opened a small something. I have to say, in the early 1950s, if Her Majesty had done anything, it led the news. Even if there'd been an earthquake killing three million people somewhere, Her Majesty opening a shoe shop somewhere would be first. And therefore, there was an enormous change happened in the 60s of outlook of journalism, of style, and of audience. Because the audience began to be given news that was about um, very, very up-to-date events with pictures. And this had been, you know, considered to be really rather novel and not very important in journalism. Fleet Street was still king. By the time you get into the 70s, the audiences are increasing. The equipment has changed phenomenally. The pictures are coming in quicker. People have got a much more journalistic style. There are fixed points in the evening, fiddled around a bit to begin with, but it start, they eventually ended up with six o'clock in the evening for all of those people in those days who came home from work at 5.30 without a long commute. Six o'clock was the first news. Then there was nine o'clock in the evening with the BBC, 10 o'clock for news at 10. And the habit developed right through the 70s and 80s as there was more technology which brought news faster so that the on the days events started being put on air People bought more televisions. Remember at the time, <clears throat> to slightly older people in the audience, when you said, shall we have a TV in the bedroom? <laughs> it was a big sort of discussion in the 80s. Then the TV turned up in the kitchen. These were all extraordinary innovations, changes in the way that we, we watch television. And so it became the norm that by the 80s, the news was one of the dominant programs in the middle of the evening. People used to sit down with a cup of tea and a biscuit at nine o'clock. 
and watch 28 minutes of news. And the point about this is it's before 24-hour news really gets going. Radio is only beginning to sort of put it through the day. And there's none of the 24-hour newses. And what happened? And what made this news, the sort most of the what, what at least half, two-thirds of what you've seen, such an impact was the audiences were enormous. We're talking about, in the early 90s, 14 million for the BBC, 12 million for ITN. It built of this. That's a huge number. You don't get anything like those audiences except perhaps for a royal wedding nowadays. And the point about it was that People hadn't listened during the day. There were no smartphones. There were no computers to trot onto and say, what's happening? There were no little alerts on your mobile or there were no iPads. So when people sat down at 6 o'clock, or usually 9 o'clock, and the news came on, good Lord, people said, that's happened. They hadn't been alerted during the day. It was a genuine almost in-your-face moment when a newsreader sat there at 9 o'clock and said, today the Prime Minister is going to... Oh! And so we had that extraordinary kind of atmosphere surrounding news which made it a must-viewing moment. That has all now evaporated. And I think... It, it's curious because nobody explains this to viewers. It's just that we alter our lifestyles, we get more equipment, we have more data, information now from dozens of sources. So it's almost impossible for young people to imagine what it used to be like and why vast numbers tuned into the news. And then today, it's very difficult for young people also to imagine not having the latest at their fingertips. So we, the journalists, who produce that information, who write about it, who report it, we have had to change, and we're still in the business of changing, because nobody knows quite what the pattern is for the next <coughs> 10 years. Instant history of tele-news viewing. Excellent. Um. <laughs> I've taken three or four times longer than that in lectures I've given not far from this place. Um, we'll come to some of the deeper implications, and I'm sure we'll get questions, not least from some of our students, I hope, about such changes. Um, let's, let's just do a bit of biography. Let's just get... How did you, get, how did you end up on the BBC, at, you know, watching the Princess Gate Iranian embassy siege? Uh, you, you were born in Sunderland, or you grew up in Sunderland. Uh, you sort of... I don't... You weren't... Desperate to be a journalist throughout your oh, childhood? Oh, good Lord. For my, my headmistress would turn in a grave, you know, I'd, I'd become a journalist and I'd, a job which would involve, in her views, um, talking to strange men on street corners without having been properly introduced. Um, uh, I went to that sort of school, which is part of this, in the sense that I wasn't expected to have a career. I went to a nice private girls' school where nice private girls are we given an education which involved deportment and French conversation? That sort of thing. Uh, even, the, even in the Northeast, quite something. Um, <laughs> and uh, the word career was not mentioned very much, partly because I come from that generation whose mothers and grandmothers had done something, not specifically mine, but 
in a generational sense, had done something through both world wars and been asked to work, do something extraordinary maybe, spread their wings, learnt all kinds of skills, and in both 1919 and 1945 were told to get back to the kitchen. Men were coming back from wars, women's job was to be in the kitchen, and I think my very favourite moment is just a little bit around the time when I was born, uh, after World War II, um, there was a wonderful poster which sums up everything of the government's attitude to women and which hung over my school days and the thought of career. And it was a wonderful picture of a woman with beautifully done hair, absolutely sort of, uh, perfectly turned out, little pointy shoes, standing in front of an immaculate house with a pot burning on the hob. And this was all to do with men coming back from war. And the poster said, make it a home fit for him to come home to. <laughs> that was the push for some 15 years after the war, that women should be domestically excited. The idea of them being part of public life, well, of course, there were some women in public life, but a very small minority. The push was very much against women going into careers. I suppose I went through school without thinking about it. There was no great sort of argument, well, you mustn't, dear. But the thought was, well, you know, you probably marry, have a couple of children, you wouldn't work because it was awkward, you know. All of those sort of things. And the idea of career was for a few blue stockings. So I came out of um, school with absolutely rubbish A-levels because I'd involved myself, well, in the pursuit of a boyfriend. You know. <laughs> that was going to be the future, really. Um, and a lot of tennis. <laughs> that was it. And so did most of my contemporaries. We didn't think about further higher education, uh, except for my headmistress, who was absolutely desperate looking at the boyfriend-mad crowd in my form uh, and, 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 and seeing rubbish results. And she determined that at least one girl will go on the university entrance board. She was a determined woman, an Oxford graduate, blue stocking. So she landed upon me. You think she saw potential? <laughs> no, my name begins with A. I was first on the register. <laughs> So he landed on me, and I got pushed into university by the cap flap, which... What did you study, Kate? Well, that's the point. There were, um, I mean, all, all the things that I'd wanted to or thought about studying and applied to rather sort of vaguely in various universities uh, were gone. So there were a few places left on one of the less subscribed courses, which is why I have a degree in Swedish and ancient Icelandic. <laughs> And my professor, but I do go back, I had luck. He was the most tremendous, he was a polymath. He spoke 38 languages. He was a man who'd worked in espionage during the war and propaganda. He was the most tremendously interesting man who taught us about anything and everything. A great deal of it not at all to do with the course. We learned a lot about espionage. Uh, we learned a lot about the history of the horse. We learned it just because he thought, you know, somebody said, I don't know, and he then proceeded to tell us. He just filled our brains with 
information and said, you must go on learning the rest of your lives. Marvelous, marvelous man. And he said to me in my final year, when I realized that all the boys at university who have science degrees, and they were all going off to work for Procter and Gamble and the Foreign Office, all of this stuff. And I thought, what am I going to do? And he looked at me and he said, Miss Evie, he said, I predict that you will become a national treasure. <laughs> Should the Vikings ever invade us again? <laughs> Still waiting. But he was a wonderful guy and another little bit, bit of luck. Now, this was pure luck. I went home. I had no idea what I was going to do. And in my local newspaper in the northeast of England, how staggering is that? The good old Sunderland Echo. It had a little advert one night. I was sitting at home doing nothing except read the newspaper and taking the dog for a walk and wondering what I was going to do. And it said, BBC is starting a new venture of local radio stations. One of them will be in Durham, 12 miles away. Local? Well, I was local. Radio? Hmm. Well, I'd listened to a lot. <laughs> Sounds interesting. So I applied. And I got in. And talk about luck. I had no idea what I was going into. Uh, they had no idea what they were hiring. Um, I was somebody who failed when they pushed a sort of object towards me during the interview with four suits sitting behind us. I was the one who said, what's that? And they said, Miss A.D., it's a tape recorder. <laughs> I had no idea. And I was tumbled into this new experiment called local radio where I started on Radio Durham, spent about 18 months there, and then moved to another radio station, Bristol, and spent five years there. And I sometimes say to students who are so quick off the mark to say, well, I've done my stuff, I've studied, where am I going to go? Shouldn't I, in a couple of years' time, move into this? Shouldn't I then be earning that? Shouldn't I actually be doing it? I stayed almost seven years in local radio because I enjoyed it. I was fascinated. Local radio was about going out with a microphone and asking people questions and finding things out and finding that the world was full of the unexpected, the things I hadn't imagined. And you didn't have to go into a world of glamour or power or money. You went out to find out ordinary people's lives and people had done extraordinary things. They knew things you didn't know, and other people didn't know about them. You found out that people had passions. God Almighty, spending two hours trying to interview somebody about their collection of tortoises, <laughs> which did include the question at one point, are any of them dead? <laughs> to which the answer was, possibly. <laughs> All of this made wonderful interesting radio and you learned that you knew very little and you particularly knew very little about how your society worked from the rich to the poor to the clever imaginative and creative to the people rubbing along in desperation unable to make sense of the world around them you learned so much you learned to listen to them. Yes, you learn to ask questions, 
but the important thing was to listen to them and to let their words, the people who've experienced life, go on air, because that made great broadcasting. And I took that mantra, that it was listening to the people on site who'd had the experience. It was their view that mattered, not mine. I was just asking a few little questions. And I used that kind of experience in the middle of wars in Africa, in places like Sarajevo, during a civil war, at uh, huge earthquakes in Armenia, during terrorist um, actions, and also in conflict. It's the people in front of you who you see and you get access to, and you ask them questions, you get them to tell you their story. Because it's their story that's going to make magic broadcasting. Not mine. I'm just a little creature with a microphone and maybe a camera in television. And I learned all of that in local radio, which is why I'm passionate about it. All human life is there, especially behind the respectable lace curtains. <laughs> that sounds like a threat, Cornwall. Be careful. Um, I can see, and I obviously share your view, my background is local papers, and I, I've worked in it all my journalistic life. But there's still, and I agree, a story is a story is a story. People, people are people. But there is still a world of difference for... I think you described yourself as quite a timid child and so on, you know, um, who didn't have a sense of adventure when you were young, to go, there's a lot of difference between talking about dead tortoises in Plymouth or wherever it was, and sort of being catapulted um, a decade later. You joined the BBC centrally in the 70s, didn't you? How did, how did you find yourself, you know, because foreign correspondence is a particular kind of game. Well, first of all, the, I, I was never actually um, a foreign correspondent based abroad. I was someone who was based in London who was sent to stories. It could be anywhere. In fact, that happened the first day I joined the BBC in London. Having worked in regional television, can we actually draw a line over this? Because it did involve Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs> Boo hiss. And also Southampton, where I was, frankly, rubbish. I had no idea what I was doing in, in regional television. My boss in um, local radio had said that somebody in Plymouth needed another pair of legs, and I thought I was coming around. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was called. There was um, a, a morning, morning southwest, which was a radio program from Plymouth that sort of interjected into the Today program when people had had enough of Humphreys. Yeah. From, so you've got Plymouth. Um, Even back then they'd had enough of him. Yeah, yeah. And then... Um, I found myself in, in, in regional television. I really had no idea. I had no idea how to do television. Um, I wasn't too keen on doing it. I thought most people in front of television, were the camera, were idiots. And I really didn't want to be on it myself. But the, on top of that, all the stories I was sent on were absolutely dreary rubbish. Um, I couldn't think why we were trying to interest viewers in them. Local radio had been much more interesting. I really found out fascinating thing. Um, and then I got sacked from it. <laughs> Turned out to be a good thing. And hired by a rather desperate editor up in London who'd been using me for weekend stints in London, who hired me. And I said, well, I've got to tell you um, for the weekend that, that I've been sacked by BBC Southampton. 
And he said, well, you better come up to London and stay. That's the equivalent of a BBC interview <laughs> for a job. And I found myself in London. On the very first day I walked in there, I was absolutely terrified. I knew I had none of the international experience. I'd been in local radio and I'd been in, in regional television. And I walked in following two blokes, both of whom I recognised from telly, had been in Vietnam. You know, um, <clears throat> I'd been to Penzance, but it wasn't quite the same. <laughs> and I thought, wow. And they went up to the assignments editor, the man whom I at least knew the system, you know, who walked into this huge newsroom in Shepherd's Bush. And the first bloke there, I mean, the assignments editor didn't look up, didn't look up at all. He looked at the first, he sort of looked at his papers and he was on the phone to three other people shouting down them. And he said, right you, he said, go to Belfast, riot last night, more trouble, they can't cope, get on. And the guy just disappeared out the room. You know, when I was in Plymouth, it took a lot of persuading that I should actually take, you know, a sort of bus somewhere, never mind take a plane anywhere. And so I thought, God, he's gone to Belfast. The troubles were in full flight. I thought, God, Lord, I'm not really ready for this. And the second one in, I'm standing there behind him, was told, go to, go and see the foreign editor, something in Africa, God knows where, get a jab or you'll die. <laughs> I was absolutely dumbstruck. I stood there like a tin of milk, and I went, hello. I said, I'm, shut up, said the word. You, right. We're short on time. We want a piece for the lunchtime. Get moving. I said, where? He said, Crufts. <laughs> I went to Crufts. Um, that kind of assignment was de rigueur. You were a pair of legs, you were a reporter, you got sent. There was very little horses for courses. Occasionally, somebody who was been somewhere and knew something about it was sent. You were basically a functioning reporter, and you got sent off. Now, I say this very firmly, because you did not volunteer, and you certainly didn't get to go to conflict by asking for it. Whoever was on the rotor got sent. You were expected to just go cover. And so that's how you ended up in places where you would have never dreamed of being. So it's a strangely sort of democratic system. It's not as if they, were, they saw you as the talent, as it no, were, you know. The word was not used. As far as you were considered, well, particularly by the crews you went with, you were the, um, they, one was the lens, the other one doing sound was the lips, and you um, were the one who lugged the tripod. <laughs> so you lugged the tripod. And that was it. Um, reporters had no great standing. There were no great, you, you know, you were someone who functioned really behind the camera. You might pop up briefly, but there was no personality. There was no sense of you being the star on the telly. No, not in the least. But the joy of it was that I didn't really want to be in front of the telly. I mean, I just found it quite amazing that the BBC paid for an air ticket for you to go somewhere. It was fantastic. It was a kind of magic flying carpet. I couldn't believe it, even though you always went cattle class. 
You went literally cattle class if you went on an aid plane to a place which was in difficulty because that was often the only thing flying there. I once fl flew from Kent International Airport, amazingly, amazingly titled shed somewhere in Kent. Um, and there was an Oxfam chartered plane going to take aid to Central Africa. And it was literally sort of almost cattle class, actually bird class, because it had previously on the flight, just before it had flown in, and it had done some trucking of 28 incontinent ostriches somewhere, <laughs> and nobody had cleaned it. And we then got on it for a 12-hour flight. It was nothing glamorous. You went with whatever there was. You went wherever they said you were going to go. And it was not glamorous, not luxurious, but it was wonderful. It was, it, it was a kind of magic adventure with fairly gritty circumstances. When was the first, assuming that Crufts was a fairly good gig in terms of danger, um, when was the first time that you can remember, maybe it was the embassy siege, I don't know, but when you can remember thinking, this is a kind of step up. I'm, yeah, I'm in I'm danger. Yeah, not a step I'm... up at all, a step down. I was sent on a completely soft story to Holland very early on in the 70s to see the members of the Jereformierde Kirche, the Reformed Church of the Netherlands, who are a... Uh, they're, they're like the Amish. There's very few of them left. They live in the 18th century. They wear long skirts and bonnets, the women, and the men... It is very much like it is a closed, um, conservative, evangel um, uh, sort of uh, Protestant community. They live north of Utrecht, and they don't agree with polio vaccination. Lots of, you know, sort of parallels in various sort of sects and small communities. The first thing we did was go to Utrecht Hospital and film two children in an iron lung. And if anybody has any memory of what polio is like, it's absolutely ghastly. Children in this huge machine breathing for them. These people wouldn't be vaccinated because somewhere they found in the Bible nobody mentioned syringes or polio. And we went to film them. None of them would speak. We were told they don't speak to outsiders and we, they regard the media as the devil's work. Where was that? So we decided we'd film them and we stood on the side of a little road near a canal, a lovely picturesque part of um, Holland, and there was this little chapel at the far end of the road about 200 yards away. Strangely enough, for people who live in the 18th, now 17th century, they drive cars. We notice that, maybe because of the distances involved in Holland. This lot. So we were watching them coming out of church, women with little bonnets on, long skirts. And we were filming by the side of the road and chatting and then saying, should we approach one of them? Do you think it's worth trying it? While we were saying that, we heard a noise. It was a car accelerating. And one of them drove straight at us. A cameraman nearly went in a canal. I went in a ditch with a sound man, and they missed us by about two feet. Not what we were expecting from God-fearing people. <coughs> Danger occurs in the most unlikely places. 
and it's a big lesson to learn. It's a matter of saying, it's, it's not a matter of going off to conflict uh, where you might experience real risk, real danger. It can come out of the blue, and it's the stuff that comes out of the blue which is often the most dangerous. Tell obviously, us, war Tell us more, dangerous. obviously. I mean, tell it, you, you mentioned in your autobiography a few moments when you, oh, you're honest enough to say you were scared witless at certain times and <laughs> fearful. What, what springs to mind? I don't want to steal the juicy questions from I the don't audience. Have, but, um, I don't, well, I, I quite, the, quite often the question understandably comes, what's the worst moment? And I don't have a worst. No. I don't. But, and, and what I do, but illustrating do, the point you just made, which is, you know, I've survived a day of bombing or whatever, and there's and danger comes from an unexpected place. Does anything spring to mind in that All context? sorts of things. Um, in, in the middle of um, Bosnia, I had two incidents within 24 hours in Bosnia in the 1990s, where, which was mayhem on the ground. Civil wars are nastier, dirtier, and more dangerous because neighbours kill each other, and ordinary people go mad with fear or hatred. And guns appear everywhere, particularly in the Balkans. And there are no front lines. Not everybody wears a uniform, by any means, a tiny minority do in militias. You don't know who they are, who they're supporting, what they're up to, what mood they're into. It, it is really, really frightening. Civil wars are very, very difficult, and particularly in the Balkans. And I was near Osijek in northern, um, actually in, northern, in, in Croatia, one day, we were passing through there, and we stopped, and there was a little bit of hoo-ha going on. We could hear some shots being fired. And then out of nowhere, three men appeared, all armed, all very young, and one of them behaving extremely weirdly, and who spoke English. And after about a minute, and, they, and he pulled a gun, we realized that the one, because the way the other two were behaving as well, was psychotic. He was saying, I will kill you. It would be good to kill you. It is good to kill me. And he meant it. And the other two were backing off. And you try and think you can't reason with a psychotic. 24 hours later, I was back near Sarajevo, having driven down. And I'm in my wagon, which is an up-armored uh, Land Rover. And we just stop in a village which I know well and where there's very little problems and there are UN soldiers around and various. And I'm driving along and I stop because there is a bit of a fight going on in the middle of the road and there's some drunks. I don't know what's happening. It's midday. I stop. And before we can do anything, my side and I'm driving next to my cameraman who's got a camera up and is filming through the windscreen wondering what's happening. The door is wrenched open, and somebody who is very definitely drunk, as you can smell it, and gets a knife to my throat. You can see why I don't actually say which is the worst, number one, two, three. Yes. You can get the most unexpected, the most frightening happening for no reason whatsoever. And it's not anything to do with battlefield courage or enemy action. These are people out of their wits because of trouble. And you have to watch for it. Were you conscious of being 
more or less vulnerable by virtue of your gender back then? I mean, it, it, well, yes, because you, um, rape is part of war. And I interviewed people and I saw people in Bosnia to whom it had happened wholesale. And that happens in other wars as well. And you come across that immediately. The other thing is if you work in the Middle East and places where there is conservative religion, particularly conservative Islam, for example. I've worked in Saudi Arabia. I've worked in Iran. I've worked in Afghanistan, where women are regarded as trash. And I use that phrase. I will not take anything on board about them being given a special position, special permit. They have no legal rights, they have few civil rights, and they are treated like animals at times, as if they don't matter and they get a kicking. And it is this lack of legal rights which makes life so difficult, and the fact there is no respect for them. Absolutely none. It is complete <laughs> piece of imagination that women have a special protected position. No, they don't. And it makes life extremely difficult. But here's the point as a reporter to all young reporters starting out. I don't go there to make a feminist point and start a revolution or be a martyr. I go there to get a story. You go there to follow the story that you're looking for. You go there to get the interview, to get the pictures, and to get it back to the viewers at home. So you use every trick in the book to make sure that you get that. If that involves gritting your teeth at times, or pushing at a local taboo, which is not going to cause physical violence to you, but is just going to annoy people, but not to the point they're going to harm you. You do it. You follow your instinct to get your story. I'm thinking of a time I interviewed an Afghan warlord, who's a hairy little thing, who is standing in the middle of a field, and who is the only person we had offered to us by the locals. And I had an interpreter with me, with, uh, with my crew. And the interpreter has said, he is the man who is in charge of mine clearing in this area, which was the story we were doing. Fine. And I said, will anybody know? He is the only one who knows about this and will talk. Fine. Stood in front of him. Cameraman gets ready. At which point, Warlord makes noises. And the interpreter says, he won't talk to you because you're nothing. I said, a woman. He said, yeah. He doesn't talk to women. I said, well, he's not talking to my camera then, so that's it. And the interpreter passed this on. And he said, no, he'll talk to your cameraman. My cameraman, well-trained, said, no, that's the reporter. I do pictures. I don't do anything else. I'll pass. After a bit, I said, well, that's it. There will be no interview. You won't be on TV. Nobody will see you around the world. Be amazed what vanity does. <laughs> you are using a tried and tested technique in television to get him on air. 
And eventually he says to his interpreter, who says, he'll do it, but he won't look at you. I said, oh, fine, right. So we did the interview. You'd think he'd look at the camera. It's absolutely fascinating. He spent the entire interview with his eyes fixed here. <laughs> but I got the interview. I'm not going to have a big go at him about women. I'm not going to talk about women's rights. I'm going to say, I've got my bloody interview. I'm going to get it. And that's how I got it. So you get round these things. You are treated badly. You are you are as nothing. And all the time you have to remember that maybe there's another story you're going to do. And that is, how do women survive in this atmosphere? You say to yourself, we should be doing something about this as well as the conflict. How are women surviving it? And you go and see them as well. But you, you, you use every professional means to get the story. Beautifully put. Um, I think it's time, I haven't got through half my questions, as I knew I wouldn't, because it's the answers we want to listen to. Um, and I want to hear what our audience has to say. Um, so maybe if we can bring the lights up, and someone could come and take this microphone from me, I think, to do the honours. Is it Mia? Thank you very much. Um, I think how we'll play this in time-honoured fashion uh, is, please just raise your hands, and I will try and be able to sort of identify you and Mia will get to you as quickly as she can. And if I don't hear it, you'll have to forgive me. I'm as deaf as a post. Um, partly because I was born partially deaf and never knew it until I was blown up in Beirut um, in my 30s, late 30s. And I was blown up with an RPG grenade hit the wall of our office. While I was, I wasn't doing anything brave and, 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 and amazingly sort of outstanding. I was playing Scrabble with my colleague. Because <laughs> nobody goes out in the streets, you know, there's that amount of stuff coming in. And um, my ears rang and I went to go to see when I got home. And I, I thought there's something, ooh, there was such an explosion. And the uh, specialist looked at my ears and said, yeah, yeah, don't worry. He said, the inflammation will go down, he said. I wouldn't worry at all. You're as deaf as a post anyway. <laughs> and so I have very poor hearing, and it has been exacerbated by a number of banks. So forgive me if I don't first hear the question when somebody says it. We somebody will repeat it. Through. Yeah. Just raise your hand if you've got anything to say. Maybe particularly, we'll start on this side if anyone's got any questions. Um, don't be shy. <coughs> I can't hear. Beautiful voice. Ignore the microphone, which is yeah. fine. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> 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 How far away do I keep it? What is that? Okay. Can you hear me now? Can you hear that? Just about. Just about. I wondered how you dealt with the personal aspects of life, live, you know, in a war zone or something. Just what aspects of the personal aspects of life in a war zone. I mean, how, where you mean you washing and all that stuff. Washing in a man's world to yes. some extent, or yeah. just, you know, how, do you, how does Put domestic life work Put out? Put it this way. Most people think that being a television correspondent, particularly if you go off to war, is glamorous. Um, the first thing, well, I can, I, I can explain it by a quite simple story. Standing outside of the place where we were sort of lodged, and lodged is um, a big word for it, uh, an alternative to sleeping in a cow buyer 
in central Bosnia, which was all we had for a couple of weeks, uh, we finally got ourselves lodged into a sort of what had been a and b in a rather ramshackle village, which was um, subject to a lot of shell fire and problems and fighting. And we were in there for a bit. At least we had our little sleeping bags and we were on real beds. And one morning we had to um, uh, get up and do a piece for the David Frost program, live on air. We had a satellite dish with us, which of course meant we could do instant broadcasting. We'd had a bad week. We'd spent some time in Sarajevo. There uh, was no proper food. All shops and hotels had been looted. Um, there was nowhere to stay. There were, um, you know, we had this one place where we had a little landlady who somehow scraped on the black market to get us some stuff. Um, we hadn't had any good food uh, for a bit. We had no fresh food. There had been no running water for four days. And I was there in front of the um, camera, ready to do a live piece by hiding my cameraman behind a wall and myself behind another small sort of edge of the house because it was sniper fire, ready to do a live piece in the morning. And I said to the cameraman, as you do, how do I look? To which the cameraman said, don't ask. <laughs> I said, can they hear us in London? How do, can you hear us in London? He said, they're hearing you in London. I said, are we ready? He said, my shirt looks good. I'd borrowed his shirt, which looked cleaner than mine. <laughs> he said, right, they're ready. I said, right, okay, sound right. Camera right. Okay. Everything okay? And he said, yeah, they can hear you, they can see you. Thank God they can't smell you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I joke not. You go into refugee camps. The first thing you get is scabies. It's a horrible disease of mites crawling up your arms. It takes days to get rid of it. You are in places where there is no electricity. The lavatories don't work. I'm an expert at digging latrines. I'm not joking. You know, always put them a bit further away than where you're sleeping. Um, Never did them in, as I did in, a, in Rwanda, in an avocado grove, where I thought there was good coverage from the trees. Um, if the avocados are over right and drop, and everybody comes to the latrine, they all s slip, <laughs> and s slip on the avocados, and the results are ghastly. I mean, <laughs> this is real life. It is extremely hard. It is grotty. Um, it is um, a the first, and also you're eating terrible food, so your skin gives up after a bit because you're on such a dreadful diet. Everybody thinks television is glamorous. Um, when you're doing the really hard stuff, it is really difficult. On the other hand, there is quite nothing quite like the fact that the people you meet on a daily basis who are going through this week in, week out, you're not going to spend all the time. You can escape back to your home in Britain. They are going through a much, much worse time. And what you are utterly staggered about on a personal basis 
is how generous they are. You turn up at their half-bombed house and they rootle around because you're strangers, guests, and they drag out the one bottle of hooch they have and offer it to you as a guest. This happens time and again. People are wonderful. The personal side of a lot of the people, most of the people that you're trying to interview, trying to find out what life is like after there's been an earthquake, floods, a devastating attack on people. The local people stagger you with their humanity. They really do. And generosity. Those who have the least give the most. It's quite amazing. So it totally and utterly rubs out what is going to be for us a temporarily nasty period. <laughs> when you realize that the people you've come to report about, it's their personal lives that you should be talking about, asking about, putting on screen. How are they coping? What are they missing? What don't they have? That's what matters. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Any more for any more? Should we come down the front? Hello. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, do you feel as though frontline news reporting has become much more sanitised now um, in that we hear a lot about reporters sort of staying in hotels and getting their stories fed to them? Um, do you think that's the case or...? I just didn't hear the letter. You hear more about reporters who say... Who sort of having a more sanitised time. They oh, yeah. stay in hotels right. today and it's... This is a hugely complicated um, subject you, you've... Um, uh, raised, and very important too. Um, society has its own rather unwritten rules about what it can tolerate on television and what it can't. And let me say, society meaning your crowd in your country, it varies vastly from country to country and from culture to culture. People don't realize this. Television is not international in that sense. What some cultures can tolerate, others won't. And so that's the first thing to understand. Secondly, no lines can be drawn, written down, and put absolutely in black and white as to what you can put on television and what you can't. It is a kind of social consensus allied with habit, allied with context, and a whole load of other things that actually says, can you put a dead person on screen? It's as stark as that. Can you put a corpse on the news? At the moment today, there is a much more limited view. One of those stories, which you may have noticed, the one in Bosnia, had me doing a piece to camera with a corpse in the background. Because such was the horror of the story, 38 elderly people with their heads, some with their heads cut off, some with their throats slit. Such was the outrage of this story that I did a piece to camera in front of a partial shot of one of the victims because I felt so strongly. That wouldn't go out today. We live in a slightly more sanitized time. Partly it is to do with politics. 
to do with the politics of broadcasting and broadcasters being less confident in the face of complaint and in the face of um, criticism. It's a maybe temporary blip because what we're up against is videos coming from YouTube and from other sources, for example, ISIS over the last two years, of the most horrific images which would never make it onto mainstream television. Now, two arguments here, two sides. One would say you can't possibly see what are nearly, you know, pornographic views of cruelty and horror and suffering, that that should never go out. And secondly, the reaction of quite a lot of people on watching the internet saying, you keep stuff from us on the BBC and ITN and Sky. You don't show it all. You censor. Yeah, you do. And people say, people who censor can't be trusted. And there is a huge, great set of arguments about what you can and can't show. So it is a very difficult thing. I said no line could be drawn. It is a matter of a kind of rather nebulous consensus as to what we can. You are right, though, to say that we go through, I think the best word is fashions. It's to do with fashions. It's to do with how the country's feeling. It's to do with what's expected of television. So we are now in a slightly more censored time. Cautious, I think I would use the word. What about the reporters themselves? I think that was part of the question too. Are the reporters as gung-ho and as kind of ready to rough it now well, as you were? Well, to be perfectly honest, nobody does the jobs that I and my colleagues used to. Television has changed. We ought to get onto this because television has changed, television reporting from those days when I talked about television expanding, having lots of money, sending people everywhere, and there were bureaus everywhere. I'll give you one simple argument about the money and the amount of energy uh, expended in foreign news coverage if I talked about the Americans. In the 1980s and into the 90s, the Americans were amazing for covering the world with vast amounts of TV crews and having bureaus staffed by large numbers of journalists. Give an example of the four networks, including CNN now, covering Africa in the 80s and 90s. They had bureaus in Cairo in the north, in Nairobi in, in the... Um, in the, in the east, in Lagos, in Nigeria in the west, and down in South Africa in the south. Staffed with journalists, crews, and reporters. Today, like today, all four networks are covering Africa from Hammersmith <coughs> in London. They don't have anybody based in Africa. And vast numbers of the independent broadcasters and the commercial broadcaster are pulling their horns in. There is very little money. Um, the sort of job which we used to do by jumping on a plane, going to places, getting the first pictures, is now obsolete because the two big, plus some others, agencies, AP and Reuters, have cameras worth worldwide and little satellite dishes which will send you the pictures back but there won't be a reporter with it. The reporter stays in London 
and voices the pictures. On top of that, the attacks on reporters, particularly by ISIS, but not the only places where this has happened, has frightened huge numbers of people, including governments who have to deal with hostage negotiations and those difficulties, have frightened people in sending them into difficult areas. On top of that, people are more safety conscious, risk assessment, health and safety. All of this is shrinking the reporting thrust into difficult places. So it is a very worrying situation we have. And all I can say is, I don't wish to send reporters into places where they will automatically come to harm. Of course not. Nor do I want to risk lives where the odds are so against them. It is foolhardy. But I do worry that the world at the moment is quite a difficult place with conflict, trouble, huge stories, important issues to be reported. And we're not there, partly because of money. When you consider that there are wars going on in Yemen, Libya, northern Iraq, Syria, trouble in Ukraine, and that's all within two and a half, three hours flying distance from London, not the ends of the world, mm. not difficult to get to. And the reporting from it is minimal, minimal. It is extremely worrying. We live in a slightly uncomfortable age. It needs to be reported. I mean, give me half an hour and I'll bang on about how important I think it is. You report because you want to tell people about the world they live in. Some things are wonderful, exciting, inspirational. Some things are difficult. Some things are complex. Some things are rather boring and tedious. And some things are threatening and dangerous and worrying. All of these things make up reporting. We need reporters. We need active news organizations which can be trusted to get the information back so that you in your country, which is democratic, can take decisions and urge people who are taking decisions for government what we ought to do. The better informed we are, the better we sleep at night. I'm not joking. It is the unknown, the non-reported, the unexpected, which are disturbing. We need to know, however uncomfortable it is. And we need a generation of new reporters, young people, who are very conscious of good reporting, why they're going out to do things, and reporting. And it's not just in the wider world. Nothing beats getting a good local story. <laughs> Nothing. When I read of the amount of corruption, grubby dealings and things which go on locally, I long for reporters to say, I want to report in Falmouth. I'm not suggesting that grubby things go on. <laughs>
But I do care passionately that good reporting starts at home, knowing how your society lives. I'll give you one simple example. I don't know, I'm ignorant of, where your magistrates' courts are. There are fewer now. It takes longer to get to them. I don't, I don't know of any outfit that sends reporters to sit day after day in the magistrates' court to report on what happens in your community, what goes wrong, how it is dealt with, the people who get into trouble. It's a dreadful mistake now in our societies we pass by on the other side of how the law operates, which is fundamental to the good working of our societies, because there are two, at least, seats reserved, which we fought for decades ago in this country, to get journalists into every court in the land. Go into a crown court, go into a magistrate's court. There will be two empty Seats. It's a crying shame. We need to know how we are living before we even inquire in the wider world. We need young reporters who want to take up the local story and we'll be a healthier and better informed society. Lecture over. <laughs>
people who've had a hard day. You talk about things. It's not a therapy session. It is being together and actually knowing that everybody else has experienced something. And that's important. And I did it every single day of my working life. The other thing is, I was talking to another senior reporter two days ago, worked for another company. Neither of us knows a single reporter or crew or anybody in journalism who's ever had PTSD. It is disgraceful the way a very, very serious, traumatic, and horrendous condition is bandied about as something which you can sort of get when your budgie falls off the perch in the morning, or you have a minor, minor shocking episode. We all experience grief or shock and even depression at times. It's natural. We come out of it with friendship, cups of tea, and people listening, and people talking. Journalists go into most situations, most of them, if they have any nous whatsoever, and I used to make it absolutely de rigueur, that any of my juniors, when I was the chief news correspondent, and I had very large numbers of journalists working under me, knew if they were going to conflict, what conflict was like, and I didn't send them to the movies where the heroes and the nice people survive, because the opposite is true in war. The good people, the nice people, often die. You send them to read, to read about World War I, to read about Vietnam, to read about World War II, to know what happens, not to be shocked. They must know. They must know. And so, unless you have that grounding, I would never send anyone towards a conflict zone. And if you know, you perhaps say to the bosses, the editor, I don't think I want to go. And there's not an editor in the land who will send you. You don't have to. It isn't a matter of earning your spurs. Some people do not wish to see, hear, cannot stand, do not want to. You never force anyone. So you send people who are aware. And that is half the battle. Half the battle. There you go. And as I say, you can come back pretty shocked by what you see. But you shouldn't have been surprised by it. It's the surprise element which is the dangerous one. And as I said, I think that we bandy about these phrases these days and we forget that the best thing that can happen is people giving you a cup of tea and listening and having your friends and family round about you. I say this because I grew up in as many people possibly, or a few people around here did, um, in the shadow of World War II, where people had come through hellish things. And they came through. And they knew everything about cup of tea, talking to the neighbors, talking to the family. That's what is the best healing there is. The only problem is some journalists don't stick to tea. Thank <laughs> you.
I thought those days were over. I thought we all had to drink tea these days. Um, any more questions? A couple more I think we've got time for, if there's anybody. Let's, let's give top left a chance. Um, there's this gentleman here, glasses. Hi, good evening. Um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go through every single one of the broadcasts that we saw um, uh, before you came on stage this evening. I'd just like to know if, if there was any one incident or one, one uh, report that has affected you more than anything else. Is the one standout thing? Yeah, that... there is. I mean, there is, there's one specific story um, because it follows me, and that is China and Tiananmen Square, where I saw an army come in and murder its own people in a massacre. And probably over 2,000 people died that evening and the minority of them were students. Others were ordinary bystanders, Chinese um, citizens who were mown down by their own army, callously sent in, determinedly, by their bosses. And the Chinese have still, the reason it follows me, have still not acknowledged it. They lie about it all the time. They prevent anyone from searching on Weibo on their... Um, equivalent of Google or on their internet sources, the words Tiananmen, massacre and students are completely and utterly out of the question, forbidden and led met with a blank wall. They still will not admit what they did. And it's actually got worse recently. They've got tougher against those who are still looking for missing relatives. No idea what their fate was. Discussion is not allowed. And Xi Jinping, the new boss, is turning into a new Mao. Um, I have been back three times to China and managed to report from there without trouble. The fourth time I tried last year, I am now blacklisted. I cannot go back. I think it's a wonderful country. I think that what rules it is horrendous. And I think we should be aware that there is a growing authoritarian and extraordinarily nasty regime which is gaining more power and is making life hell for those who would think individually. And we should think carefully about putting business before human rights. of the reports did you particularly find most compelling, sir, if you looked at them all? Bosnia. Bosnia. Yeah, civil, civil wars are terrible. Civil wars pit neighbour against neighbour. And really, um, there is nothing worse. And even family against family. They are terrible. There's something very compelling about your Tiananmen Square clips, though, I think, because you are frightened and you are shocked, I sense, and that adds, we had, but you we stay seen, there. We had, it's the only time I've actually seen a hospital floor, a small hospital, um, the children's hospital, which was actually, we were wading through blood. There were so many dead people with huge bullet wounds. <coughs> Terrible. Terrible. Mm. One final question. One final question. Maybe something that anticipates uplift. 
Yeah. Well, but, um, maybe. Is that them here? Uh, oh, this one. There. We've got one at the back. Sorry. You've probably met a lot of people on your travels. I was just wondering who the most inspiring person you is you've met. The most inspiring person you have met on your travels. What a great question for us all to leave on. Politician, journalist. Um. Um, Tortoise two, keeper. Two little things. Two totally unexpected things. I mean, I, I, I'm not thinking through them, but it comes to mind. First of all, following on what I've just said. I had the luck a few years ago to meet the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei. He is a human life force. He is a brilliantly talented, internationally recognized artist. He designed the Bird's Nest Stadium for the Chinese Olympics. That's before the Chinese authorities got nasty with him. He is has an acute understanding of his country's dilemma and knows what the bosses in the party are doing to his people. And he produces the most wonderful, imaginative sculpture, painting, um, furniture, designs. He is the most rounded human being. Um, they've now demolished his... Um, house and courtyard, which were the place where he made all his um, artworks, and they bulldozed it quite recently. Um, I think the most human thing about him was that also the Chinese authorities hate everything that doesn't fit the mold. And the one thing he really managed to annoy them with, that he used to take in stray cats. <laughs> and all of these pussy cats used to be stood howling the walls, waving their tails with joy, seeing him. And the Chinese have destroyed all of that. But he goes on campaigning. He is a wonderful and forceful figure. And the other thing is, um, I think I think again about China. In the middle of that terrible night, complete strangers grabbed our arms hid us from the secret police and the army looking with snipers for us, helped us, took us to the hospital, showed us what was happening. Total, utter strangers risked their lives so that we could get the pictures and show the rest of the world. Ordinary folks, God knows what happened to them, but I bless them for doing it. Wonderful people. On that note, I think we will leave it. Uh, Kate is still going to be here. There are some of her, her uh, excellent books outside, including her autobiography, uh, The Kindness of Strangers, um, and others. Uh, and the bar will be open, and I'm sure she will be happy to answer a few more questions on a, in a less formal setting. Outside and we've got through an entire session without talking about Donald Trump. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, for that. Thank you very much.